If Washington wants to get right with voters, it has to start listening to them. Welcome to Beyond the Bubble. I'm Alex Rohde, and I'm a national political correspondent for McClatchy. And I'm Colin Campbell, editor of the NC Insider at the Raleigh News and Observer. Our host, Kristen Roberts, is in Sacramento, but we're still here pumping out the news in D.C. Colin, thank you so much for joining me. Great to be back. So what are we talking about today? We'll talk about how Democrats are faring on guns post-Parkland and if they'll take an activist or a more moderate approach to reform. So who are we talking about this with? We'll kick things off by speaking to Igor Volsky. He's the director at Guns Down America, a movement and organization that looks at how guns are being used in America and ways to change policy concerning the Second Amendment. And that's not all we're talking about, right? Yep. After we talk with Igor, you and I will chat about Connor Lamb and that epic win in Pennsylvania's special election. Okay, you ready to start the show? Let's do it. January 20th, the day the people became the rulers of this nation again. Our ideals and fundamental values are being attacked. Do we retreat or do we fight? I say we fight. He heard those voices that were out there that other people weren't hearing, and he just earned a mandate. It is time for Democrats to grow a backbone and get out there and fight. The American people would like to try something new. We would like to see the country go in a different direction to change the course for America. He doesn't take this presidency seriously enough. So to all Americans, hear these words. You will never be ignored again. Igor, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. So it has been a pretty incredible month for people in the gun control community. What has it been like to have a a front row seat at that at the time where potentially, I mean, a historic change in, in public opinion about gun violence and gun control? Well, it has been absolutely extraordinary. One of the biggest challenges that the gun safety movement faces and has faced for many years is really getting people to care, getting people to care outside of a single event, getting them to care for a sustained period of time, getting really strong advocacy either out in the field or even in the digital space. And this latest shooting uh, in Parkland, Florida, really changed that. And I think part of the reason is because you had and you have now these young students leading the movement, but also putting forward a message that is far bolder than what the mainstream gun safety movement has put forward and also cuts through a lot of the BS. And what I mean by that is, When you hear a lot of gun safety advocates talk, what they do is some version of, ugh, love the Second Amendment, love a good responsible gun owner, and then maybe if there's time they talk about background checks. These students don't do that. They go straight for banning certain kinds of weapons, like assault weapons. They go straight for ideas that really get at the heart of the problem, which I think we all agree is there are just too many guns. There's 310 million guns in America, more guns than people. And these students coming out and talking about that in such clear terms, I think, resonates with the American public. And that's why we're in a different position. And that's why I think uh, we're going to see certainly uh, this weekend a big march, not just here in D.C., but across the country, but hopefully really build out a foundation for greater engagement on this issue in the months and years ahead. So, Igor, we want to play something here. Uh, Many listeners know 
we have another podcast called Majority and Minority. And in this week's episode, hosts Bill Douglas and Franco Ordonez uh, talk to Parkland student Alfonso Calderon and Chicago student Rihanna Holman about guns in their communities. Take a listen. A lot of adults and a lot of congressmen and senators, you know, they talk about thoughts and prayers and they talk about how much they love what we're doing, but they're not yeah. doing anything. You know, they only saying that they're proud of us because they want something out of this. They're not doing Absolutely. it because they're actually proud of us. They want something out of what we're doing, and they think that that's the only way for them to get it. I mean, most of my friends have lost, like, really close friends of theirs, or, like, my friend Casiana lost her dad to gun violence. We've been working here and other areas around Chicago since 2012 to have the violence stopped, and it's only working now. It says something about the government and the communities that we do live in. And we just try to get the justice that we so do deserve. So be sure to catch all that amazing interview on Friday. Now, Igor, you pointed out that, I mean, this has not been the sort of democratic or even liberal response to guns, really dating back to even the Sandy Hook in the aftermath of the Sandy Hook shooting. Is, is it just as simple as, you know, out of the mouth of babes that people who didn't have more of a background in politics but just because they're young and they're teenagers just intrinsically understood how to move people on this issue? If you talk to them, I don't think they'll tell you that they had some kind of deep insight. I think they'll tell you that they said what they felt and what they knew to be true from hearing the bullets, from burying their friends, and they had a very emotional response to it. And in today's politics, that's what resonates. That kind of authenticity is what resonates. And I think more broadly, Americans across the country can identify with these students. They see their own kids in these students. And we've also reached a place in this country where mass shootings are far more common than they used to be. And the way schools respond to mass shootings is is very different, not just when the shooting occurs, but preparing for them. So for instance, when I was in high school, which was only 14 years ago, I calculated, uh, about 40% of public schools used to do these active shooting drills. After Sandy Hook, that number went up to about 70%. And now we're in a place where 94% of public schools, almost all public schools, do these active shooters. So parents across the country are familiar with this. And what Florida crystallized was the very real world consequences of why they do these shootings and what happens as a result of you know the weak laws we have in this country. Well, I want to ask you if you think that if the activist community understands this now, if you think the larger Democratic Party does, because there is this big debate in the Democratic Party, and it's not just about guns, between a more sort of centrist solutions and appealing to more moderate voters versus a wing of the Democratic Party led by a lot of liberal activists who encourages the kind of full-throated activism that we've seen post-Parkland on any number of issues. Taking it back to, to guns, do you think that the larger Democratic Party understands that? I certainly hope that they do. And The reason why I'm optimistic is because when I first started working on this issue intensely in December of 2015 in the aftermath of the San Bernardino shooting, it was customary for progressives, for progressive lawmakers to wait a day or two before talking about policies, right? So first they'll send their thoughts and prayers and then they'll maybe talk about policies. So those days are over and you saw immediately after Parkland, progressive leaders like Elizabeth Warren and Cory Booker and Chris Murphy immediately 
immediately say, let's talk about solutions to gun violence. So that's a, that's a benefit, and that's a sign of progress. But where they need to move further is thinking about the kind of solutions that are really going to go a long way towards solving the problem, and thinking about leading on those issues and taking the overwhelming support that you see for policies that go after the guns themselves and not just who can own the guns, but go after the guns themselves and start to build a political movement and pave the way in favor of things like gun licensing and gun training and assault weapons ban so that they may not pass Congress tomorrow or a week from now or a month from now, but you establish a long-term goal, which is moving us towards a country with fewer guns. And that's where you go in the years ahead. I think progressive lawmakers have done a good job in talking about universal background checks, and that is very important. But unless it's paired with the kind of policies that go after the guns, I I think it will be inadequate. I mean, that is you know, what the sort of policies you're advocating for are significantly different than what has been the kind of democratic consensus, the responses, and it, and it does go further, at least kind of in, in recent political history. Igor, you know what the pushback will be from a lot of Democrats, particularly as they eye retaking the House in 2018, that there are still a lot of moderate or independent or even some conservative voters who we have a chance of winning over in 2018 who, if we embrace these kind of policies, will say, no, 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 you guys are being too liberal, and I'm going to vote Republican again. What, what is your response to that? Well, I think they're wrong. I think this issue is only controversial in Washington, D.C. If you leave the country and you talk to everyday Americans, these same moderates that you mentioned, even Americans who own firearms, overwhelmingly, they support things like mandatory training, licensing. We conducted a poll back in the summer of 2017 that found over 60, 70 percent support for these kinds of policies. The problem is there isn't a leader out there who's putting together the coalition, who's building a uh, the groundwork that's necessary to get people to really vote based on these kinds of policies, to agitate for these kinds of policies. The support is there. We just need a political leader who's brave enough to capitalize on it. What was your response to Connor Lamb's candidacy? Um, you know, he ran in Western Pennsylvania, a very conservative district. You know, look, I, from my own observations of the race, he did not run as a sort of quote-unquote pro-gun Democrat the way that maybe he was made out to be afterward. But he did feature himself firing an assault rifle in one of his early campaign ads, at least for a few seconds. He grew up here, served four years in the Marines, still loves to shoot. I mean, a lot of Democrats saw that race and their takeaway was, well, in these areas, we've got to run pro-gun Democrats. Well, I think ultimately he he supported universal background checks, right, which is a good policy to be for. And I think particularly in the aftermath of Parkland, in the aftermath of this new moment that we're in and the fact that you, you see support for these common sense gun safety reforms 
really at at some of their highest points. I think Democrats and and progressives and and really uh, lawmakers across the spectrum would be missing an opportunity if they didn't meet their voters where they are. And all of this baggage that lawmakers have from the 1990s and and how they felt like you know they may have lost seats because of certain policies that passed back then. It's time to recognize that we're in a really a, a new moment. You have the NRA completely on the run, taking a big loss in Florida over an incremental piece of reform that they're now suing that state over. You have them uh, at all-time lows in terms of popularity. You had them play in that Pennsylvania race and ultimately lose. So there shouldn't be this belief that the NRA is all powerful, et cetera, et cetera. The fact of the matter is the American people are in a stronger place than they were back in the 90s. Uh, Certainly the advocacy community is far better organized. And you now have, particularly with businesses fleeing the NRA and saying, we're no longer going to do business with the gun lobby, a real sense that this is becoming an organization because it stands in the way of any real changes that would make guns harder to get, that it's becoming an organization that we do not want to associate ourselves with as a business. And I hope that as we move forward, lawmakers will say it's not an organization that we want to be taking money from, just like uh, you have all sorts of groups that lawmakers would find it too offensive to take donations from. You know, you you mentioned the the march is this weekend, and it feels a little bit like the culmination of all of this advocacy that we have seen in the aftermath of Parkland. What's next for the gun control community and this issue after that? I mean, is it about holding Democrat, a lot of Democratic candidates accountable and making sure that they have a, a strong anti-gun message? What, what, what's next for your group and sort of the broader movement here? Well, moving forward, we're going to be thinking about how we can uh, engage more students in this movement. And that's going to be a combination of um, uh, traveling the country and talking to students and, and student groups and really, again, meeting them where they are in terms of thinking and talking about bold solutions to reduce gun violence. And then the second bucket, and I think it's just as important as you move into into the midterms and beyond. And that is thinking about lawmakers who do take dollars from the NRA and seeking out opportunities to pressure those lawmakers to send back those dollars, send back the blood money, uh, as we like to say. Because, uh, again, I believe the NRA is in a weak position. And if you get one, two, or three lawmakers who are rated by the NRA to give back those dollars, you begin to really undermine this notion that it's an all-powerful lobby. Because again, at the end of the day, the overwhelming majority of Americans don't support it. The overwhelming majority of gun owners don't support its political agenda, uh, at the very least. And I think this is really a time to capitalize on that moment and also to do it in a way that engages these students and students across the country and allows them to really lead this movement because I think they're leading it to a place where we're going to develop policies that lead us towards a future of fewer guns and to a place where we ultimately have safer communities and safer schools and a safer nation. 
Igor, thank you so much for coming by. Thanks so much. So you heard me mention Connor Lamb in that interview. We want to change gears a little bit. We're still going to talk about Connor Lamb, um, but what his election last week meant, not just for Democrats, but especially Republicans. We're going to bring Colin back in to talk about it. Colin, can you break down the race for us? Yeah, this was an interesting race to see the fallout in other places. I think people across the country were really, really surprised to see how things went in this Pennsylvania race. People thought it was going to be closer. I don't think people realized that uh, Connor Lamb uh, was going to do as well as he did just compared to how the presidential election results came out in uh, that particular Pennsylvania congressional district. Um, and here in North I mean, Car- Trump won that district by 20 points. Just to, just to reiterate a stat you might have heard once, twice, or a thousand times the last week. Yeah, exactly. That's, you know, it's not chump change by any stretch of the imagination. And that caused a a pretty swift reaction from uh, both sides of the aisle here in North Carolina. The big news uh, as far as fallout from the Connor Lamb victory went in North Carolina was a leaked memo from the uh, North Carolina Republican Party's uh, caucus director. He reached out to legislators that are up for re-election in the Republican Party and basically told them, y'all need to be scared. This is a serious victory. And if you were to apply the same percentages to North Carolina in terms of the shift from the presidential election results to what this uh, race looked like in Pennsylvania, you would end up with Republicans losing the uh, control of the legislature here in North Carolina, not just Democrats breaking the veto-proof majority that Republicans have, which has always been the goal, figuring that they thanks to gerrymandering, they have to sort of start small. But you would go from a state house that currently is 75 uh, Republicans, 45 Democrats, to one that's almost the exact opposite. 74 Democrats, 46 Republicans in the state house here in North Carolina. So the language he used was the momentum on the Democratic side is real and that Republicans need to start fundraising. They need to start campaigning hard. He included a list of the uh, Republican incumbents who would be in trouble um, if the same election dynamics played out here in North Carolina. Uh, And then Democrats uh, got a hold of that memo and, of course, seized on it as a sign that uh, they've got a really good shot this year. And they were thrilled to see Republicans running scared in the wake of the Pennsylvania race. So a lot of excitement around a a Pennsylvania congressional election that up until a couple weeks ago, I don't think people in North Carolina and other states around the country were paying that much attention to. You know, it's interesting to see how how severe maybe the reaction was among North Carolina Republicans. You saw some of that in, in Washington. You also saw a host of lawmakers at least publicly declare that they didn't think it was a big deal. You know, even before this election was over, GOP leaders were throwing Rick Saccone under the bus. Uh, you would have thought that he was a, a Roy Moore clone by the end of it. Of course, he wasn't. Uh, he was mostly just a run-of-the-mill bad candidate who struggled. He didn't have exactly a whole lot of charisma, granted, um, and couldn't raise a lot of money. But he, he wasn't some kind of horrible outlier. And, and I think... You know, when you watch some of the Republicans react to this, A, you wonder if that's what they really think. But B, if you do, if they do really think that this was just a one-off and that we're still in relatively good shape for 2018, you wonder what they're thinking. Because this is the kind of district where literally Democrats didn't even have an opponent in 2016. They weren't even able to run anyone against the incumbent at that time, Tim Murphy, who had to resign in disgrace, uh, of course, last year. And it shows just what kind of sea change there's been. And it's amazing, Carl, when you mention how Republicans are even predicting the possible loss of their majority in the legislature. I mean, that's not something that was really supposed to happen 
right? I mean, they, they were seen as having a lock on that thing. Yeah, exactly. Here in North Carolina, the, you know, the lines are drawn to favor Republicans. So the Democrats from the very start of this election season said, we just need to pick up a couple of seats so that the governor can override le- or can veto legislation and the legislature won't be able to override it. They weren't talking about taking back the majority. Now they're talking about taking back the majority, which would be a huge sea change in state politics here from uh, essentially the last eight years of Republican control. Well, here's a big question for Democrats is, you know, if this wave is coming and if indeed it is a tsunami and that, and that's frankly what I think last week's election in Pennsylvania would suggest that it's not just going to be a good year for Democrats, that it's going to be a great year if they can win a district like that. The challenge for Democrats is whether or not they have strong quality candidates across the board, not just at a federal level and, and house races that never would have even people wouldn't even thought would be competitive last year, but at a state legislative level. And that's my question for you, Colin. Are there Democratic candidates in even these kind of deep red districts who are poised to take advantage of an environment like this? Yeah, it's been interesting here in North Carolina. We've seen a huge number of candidates file for office in the last month as the filing period wrapped up for this year, both at the congressional level and at the state legislative level. As best anyone can tell, unprecedented. All 120 House seats and 50 Senate seats, uh, almost all of them have uh, both a Republican and Democratic candidate. Now, the question is, are those viable candidates in those districts? They have a lot of candidates that I've never heard of. In fact, the vast majority of the candidates the Democrats are running both for Congress and for legislature are people that uh, didn't really have a profile in state politics before that. Uh, so we'll see if they run a strong campaign, if the party has the resources to cover this many candidates. Obviously, Pennsylvania was an unusual case because it's a single special election and both parties nationally poured a ton of money into it. There's a little bit less money when you're spreading it out between a bunch of different congressional districts and legislative districts, and you've got elections everywhere else in the country. So we'll see how those dynamics work out. But I'm not all that confident that the Democrats have the power players they need outside of some of the key districts in order to win some of these seats that uh, they didn't think were competitive uh, six months ago. You know, I, I, I think if you're a Republican right now looking at the national landscape, you're, you're worried, and you should be worried. And, you know, you can look at the top-line result in Pennsylvania, and that is an ominous signal enough on its own. But there are a couple of particulars, I think, in this race that should be concerning. One, you know, I really thought this was an early test of the tax bill that the GOP passed in Congress last year, that, it, you know, clearly polls have shown it has become more popular since it was passed. It's about even now when it was deeply unpopular. But the idea was Republicans could suddenly start to argue that this relatively strong economy that we have in the country right now was a product of their work. It was a product of the tax bill. And, you know, it's the economy, stupid, right? I mean, that's always what people go back to as the key issue. And if they could start to argue that, they could start to push back against some of this Democratic momentum. Well, that clearly didn't happen. Now, it it might in the coming months. Maybe the economy continues to pick up steam. Maybe the tax bill continues to become more popular. But the GOP tried to litigate this issue in the congressional district. And even in much of February, there were running ads that were really focused on it. They all but abandoned that message by the end of the race. It was a really striking development. You know, how do Republicans feel about an economic argument in North Carolina right now? Is there still that that same optimism that that is the the kind of message that can carry them across the finish line in 2018? I think that's the hope. I mean, obviously, the economic numbers here in North Carolina have looked pretty strong. Uh, The problem in North Carolina, as with many other states, is you still have the urban-rural divide 
where most of the new jobs are coming into urban districts. Uh, rural counties are still struggling. People don't have jobs. Jobs are moving to other parts of the state and parts of the country and overseas. And those are areas where a positive economic message may come up with some problems. As far as the tax bill goes, I mean, North Carolina Republicans have been cutting income taxes at the state level for years, and it didn't really help out last. In uh, 2016, Governor Pat McCrory campaigned on a positive economic message in his terms of Carolina comeback, talked about the tax cuts, and it didn't work. In a year where Republicans did well the rest of the country, he lost to Democrat, uh, who's now our governor, Roy Cooper. Um, so that's certainly some warning signs that perhaps the, the tax cut message, both in Pennsylvania and in past elections here, may not be uh, as successful as Republicans want them to be. So on that note, we are going to turn to everyone's favorite segment, the lightning round, where our panelists identify one mover or shaker making waves in 2018 or maybe even 2020. Colin? I've got Kathy Manning. She is a Democrat who is running in the North Carolina's 13th congressional district, a sort of suburban uh, rural district around the center of the state. She's a former immigration lawyer and philanthropist who's challenging incumbent Republican uh, one-term representative Ted Budd. And uh, she's, I think, one of the most competitive uh, Democrats North Carolina has running for Congress. She's already outraised uh, Ted Budd at the end of last year. She had uh, $522,000 on hand to only $300,000 for Ted Budd. This is a race that it's been marked by the DCCC as one of the targets they have uh, in this part of the country. Uh, and so I think that's probably the best chance that Democrats have to flip a Republican-held congressional seat. So I'm going with uh, Kathy Manning in North Carolina 13 this year. Well, it's, it's a great pick, and she is one of the many Democrats running in these kind of deep red seats who's actually already outraised the Republican incumbent, which is really kind of a, a, a stunning statistic. Even good candidates, good challenger candidates, aren't supposed to have raised as much money as an incumbent. Yeah, and I think some of that's the struggle of being a freshman Republican in a busy year as Ted Budd has sort of struggled to get his name out there and, and get his fundraising up to par with some of the other members of Congress from this state who've been around a lot longer. Okay, my lightning round is Cynthia Nixon. She is the liberal challenger to New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, has been uh, the talk of the town in New York uh, the last few weeks as she has prepared this very kind of sudden and unexpected challenge to, to him. Cynthia Nixon, of course, played Miranda in Sex in the City. And as my old colleague Shane Goldmacher, now of the New York Times, noted, she is going to test the appetite for Democrats for whether or not they want a celebrity candidate, just as the GOP apparently did in 2016, whether her ideological convictions are enough to overlook maybe her lack of background in the public sector. It's going to be a fascinating race to watch because of that celebrity appeal that, you know, look, that could be an early look at what we might see in the 2020 Democratic presidential primary field, not to mention that Andrew Cuomo might run for president in 2020. His ability to fend off this challenge is obviously going to be paramount to his hopes then. Yeah, you have to wonder if Oprah's not going to watch this race and see uh, what the uh, appetite is for that kind of candidate. I mean, if, if Cynthia Nixon can do it, I think Oprah, you have no reason to doubt her, right? Yeah, exactly. It's certainly a little more star power than Sex in the City. Colin, thank you so much for coming on the show. Great to be here. Talk to you soon. Thank you to producer Jordan Marie Smith. And thank you, our listeners. We want to hear from you. So please send your questions and comments to btb at mcclatchy.com or connect with us on Facebook at facebook.com slash beyondthebubblepod. Tell us what you're seeing in your battleground states. We might even ask you to call into the show. And check us out on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, or whatever podcast app you use. We want to say thank you to everyone who's left us a review or a rating. Talk to you next week. <laughs>